John's Gospel. So if you'll turn to chapter 12, we're going to cover verses 20 through 50 as we covered the first 20 verses last week. So John's Gospel, we've been in um, a verse-by-verse study of John's Gospel for the last several months, and we're going to continue. And so chapter 12, the fourth book of the New Testament. If you need a Bible to follow along with us, just raise your hand. We want you to follow and study God's Word with us. And here at Calvary Chapel, we bring our Bibles, we open up our Bibles, and we study God's Word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're going to continue to do so in John's Gospel. So chapter 12, verses 20 through 50 is where we're going to uh, have our study, and our text is going to be here this morning. Now you recall, if you've been with us in our study of John's Gospel, that um, Jesus has made his way into the city of Jerusalem. He came over from Bethany, Bethany just a couple miles from Jerusalem, right there on the side of the Mount of Olives where he was spending time with that family of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and at the house of Simon the leper, as we know from Mark's narrative in chapter 14. And he would pass from Bethany to Bethpage where he would take a, a, a colt. Uh, the disciples would bring that colt, a foal of a donkey, to Jesus. And then Jesus would, would make his way into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus as he would go from the Mount of Olives just east of where the Temple Mount was. He would come down the mountain riding on that uh, foal of a donkey. He would uh, hear the cries of the people as they were crying out, Hosanna, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And for the very first time, we know that Jesus publicly received the cries and the worship of the people that, uh, that he's Messiah. He was fulfilling the prophecies of Zechariah chapter 9, and also, as we discussed, that amazing prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel, which is one of the most amazing prophecies of all of Scripture. So Jesus coming into the holy city, and of course the religious leaders were upset, telling Jesus, you know, to tell your disciples to be quiet. This is blasphemy. But Jesus said that if these should keep quiet, the very rocks are going to cry out. And we know that the religious leaders have, as we saw in the previous chapter, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, that people were noticing the signs that he was doing around Jerusalem. Of course, previously and earlier in his ministry, there were great multitudes up in the Galilee region. But when word got out that Lazarus was raised, when he was in the tomb for four days, the religious leaders, Caiaphas, the official high priest that year, as John's gospel tells us, that he had this secret meeting. He had this emergency meeting, and it is of priority that Jesus must be put to death. They're losing their religious authority with the people. They're upset with the people now crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But we also know that as they're afraid that they're going to lose their authority with the people because they wanted to rule the people with a heavy hand. Plus, they were afraid that the Romans were going to pounce on them, on the nation, if there was any sign of rebellion against Rome. And also that we know that they are envious of Jesus, as we will see later on in John's narrative. But as the crowds were cheering, we also saw and talked about how Jesus was lamenting, because he knows that in a few short days that they're going to reject him as their king, and they're going to cry out, crucify him. So chapter 12 to the end of the uh, John's gospel is going to be focused 
on the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, his crucifixion, his burial, and resurrection. So we're going to pick up our text at verse 20 as uh, John uh, is telling us as Jesus is in Jerusalem in verse 20 of John chapter 12. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast, and then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And why don't we pray before we get into our study this morning as, Father, we do desire to do just as these Greeks desire at this time in Jerusalem, as we read that they said, we wish to see Jesus. Oh, we wish to see Jesus this morning, Father, more clearly, his love, his, his faithfulness, his goodness. So, Lord, I pray that our spiritual eyes would be open, our hearts would be teachable, that, Lord, as we take in the word of God, that it would touch our hearts in a very deep way. Help us to make uh, not only the, uh, and observe the implication of what's going on here, but application for our own lives. So, Lord, thank you that we are here. We pray that um, you would touch our hearts with the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the Synoptic Gospels, and of course that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the events of what happened during Passover week. Remember, this is Passover week as Jesus came into Jerusalem on Sunday, uh, the triumphal entry, and we know that during this week how the Synoptic Gospels particularly record the religious leaders. They're very determined. They have the priority that we're going to put Jesus to death. And so what they've been doing during this week of course, is trying to trap Jesus, find some reason to find fault with him and accuse him, and they couldn't do that. And at this time here, the text tells us that John records how certain Greeks came to, to Jesus to see him, to talk with him. And chronologically, it is believed that this event here that we just read takes place on the third day of Passover week. So the synoptic gospels do fill in and informs us of what happens from the time of his triumphal entry, which is day one of Passover week, uh, until uh, these Greeks came to seek him out. On the second day, Jesus would cleanse the temple. Now remember that in the Gospels, there's two cleansing of the temple that are recorded. In John chapter 2, that was the first cleansing that took place in Jesus' first year of his ministry. He came to Jerusalem, and he would rebuke the religious leaders as he drove out the, the sheep and the uh, sacrifices, let go the doves, and overturned the money changers' tables. And he said that you've made my father's house a house of merchandise. This is the second cleansing that, again, the Synoptic Gospels record that took place right before he goes to the cross. And at that time, he said that you made my father's house, which is a house of prayer, a den of thieves. In other words, it's a den of thieves. It's a safe haven for you religious leaders to rip the people off. But during this time, as tens of thousands of Jews are pouring into the holy city of Jerusalem, and tens of thousands of sheep are coming in as well to be sacrificed, for Passover, here is Jesus, the Passover lamb that comes into the city. And he cleanses the temple. He rebukes the religious leaders once again. So that takes place on the second day. And then on the third day, there's a number of events that take place, like when the religious leaders come to Jesus and they said, is it lawful to pay taxes? And of course, you know how Jesus 
responded by saying that render to, to uh, Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and render to God the things that belong to God. He would then get up, he would rock across the temple proper and those large courtyards that were there, and he would look into the court of the women where he saw two, uh, or actually one widow put in two mites into the offering box, and he commended her. He had just gotten through teaching about render the things that belong to God to God, and here is a widow woman that pleases God, that touches Jesus' heart by her giving of all that she had, those two to copper coins that she would put into the treasury box. He would then leave. He would go across the Kidron Valley up on the Mount of Olives. And as he was walking across the temple proper, the disciples were saying, look at these huge stones. Look at this magnificent temple. And Jesus would say to them that I tell you, the day is coming where not one stone will be left upon another. And they were astonished at that. So when they got to the Mount of Olives where Jesus was staying and retiring for the day, we know that Jesus would give what we know as the Olivet Discourse concerning the last days, the signs of his return. So that third day, there's a lot of events, including here the Greeks that would come to Jerusalem. Now, why are the Greeks coming to Jerusalem? Well, we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about it, but they would come because the Greeks had the mindset that greater the temple, greater the God. So they see this magnificent temple that was rebuilt by Herod that was uh, huge stones, one of the wonders of the world, and they would come in during this time to check it out. And that's why I believe Jesus was so upset with those religious leaders because we know in Solomon's dedication to the first temple that he would pray about the foreigner that would come to pray at this place. It was to be a witness to the other nations, and here they were being a terrible witness as all this activity going on and ripping the people off. And so the Greeks were there because they were checking out the God of Israel. So they want to see Jesus. Obviously, they've heard of him. They've heard of the signs that he's done. Perhaps some of them have watched him as he's been in Jerusalem. They're here at the feast, and, and they're worshiping, perhaps, at the feast. Uh, and, and they come to see Jesus, and they come to Philip. Now, why would they come to Philip? One of the reasons that perhaps that they came to Philip is because Philip is a Greek name. And Philip receiving this request from them, probably not knowing what to do, he would then turn to Andrew. And so Andrew would take Philip and they would go to Jesus. Now, Andrew, you know, is the brother of Peter. And Andrew always seemed to be kind of in the shadow uh, of his brother Peter, Peter being the most prominent of the disciples, the most well-known, uh, singled out by Jesus to see special miracles along with James and John, but Andrew's kind of in the foreshadow. But one of the things that we can learn about Andrew is that Andrew seems to be always bringing people to Jesus, right? We saw that in chapter 1 where Jesus brought his or Andrew brought his brother Peter to Jesus. In chapter 6, who did Andrew bring to Jesus? That boy with the few loaves and fish. So Jesus could work a miracle in feeding the 5,000, and now we see it again, the Greeks. And they come to, to Jesus as Andrew would, would say, hey, these guys, these Greeks want to see you. In verse 23, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. Now, we don't know if Jesus went to see them and speak to them directly. 
or if this was a message given to them via Andrew and Philip. And Jesus says the hour has come. Now, you recall that as we travel through the Gospel of John, we have read numerous times that Jesus has said, this is not my hour, that my hour has not come. But now Jesus is saying the hour has come to be glorified. And then he talks about a grain of wheat that is buried. Jesus, as he's going to be speaking about his death and burial and resurrection. And it's interesting, as these guys wish to see Jesus, Jesus doesn't respond to them and gives them an answer as he talks about his death, burial, and resurrection. He doesn't talk to, about the Old Testament prophecies. He doesn't point to the, the Hebrew scriptures that pointed to him uh, he, about how he's going to die and then be raised from the grave and be glorified. The reason is, is because they didn't know the scriptures. Now, again, in the gospel narratives, when the religious leaders would come to Jesus and try to trap him or ask him a question, what was his response oftentimes? Have you not read? It is written. And so he would point them to the scriptures, he would point them to the prophecies, and he would speak to his disciples specifically when he talked about his crucifixion and resurrection, that it must be fulfilled as it has been written. But here with the answer with the Greeks, these guys, they don't know the Old Testament uh, scriptures. These Greeks, they were men of philosophy, they're men of nature and science and intellect. So Jesus talks to them about the law of nature, and he gives an analogy of a seed being buried and dies and then produces much grain. They said, we wish to see Jesus. That word see doesn't mean that, you know, they wanted to see him and take a selfie with him. It doesn't mean that. They, they, it means that they wanted to know him. They wanted to perceive him. And Jesus answered them by saying, if you really want to see me, if you really want to understand me, if you really want to know about me, then you do it through my death and my burial and my resurrection. Just as that seed, it dies, and that seed will never become a plant unless it dies and is buried. So the death and burial of me is necessary for my glorification. It is now my hour. It is the hour of my glorification. May we understand today that if people truly want to see Jesus, then they need to see him through his death on Calvary's cross, how he was buried and then he resurrected three days later. And the reason that I mention that is because sometimes people will present Jesus in the light of, well, he's just another religious leader. He was a great spiritual person. Uh, he had great spiritual teachings, and, and we will run into people at times that will say, well, I believe in the teachings of Jesus. I believe in the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's what they'll kind of picture Jesus and have a mindset of Jesus. Sometimes pastors today will present Jesus to people, particularly those who are of the seeker-sensitive kind of mentality, in a way that you can relate to Jesus. I've heard many of them that will say behind the pulpit, do you want to connect to Jesus? And I think, what do you mean connect to Jesus? What does that mean? And they kind of skip around the fact that we are lost sinners headed for hell unless we turn to the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. 
and that he died on Calvary's cross uh, for my sins, for sinful humanity. He was put into that tomb of Joseph of Arimathea that had never been used before, and he resurrected bodily after three days. The only way that you and I will ever see the Lord's love for you, his reality, the meaning of the gospel is in the light of Calvary's cross and his resurrection. So Andrew and Philip, you go and tell those Greeks, they want to see me? One who's been teaching in, in Jerusalem and, and causing controversy? One that the people are waving the palm branches, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? One who's been working signs and even raising the dead as he did Lazarus over there in Bethany, they truly want to see me, then they must see me in the light of my death and burial and resurrection. It's interesting that the Greeks show up at Jesus' birth and now at the end of his life. They showed up in the beginning of his life in Matthew chapter 2, the Magi coming from the east to come and bring gifts to worship the new king of Israel. And now at the end, here are the Greeks, and they say, we wish to see Jesus. And he continues in his answer in verse 25, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now it may seem like Jesus all of a sudden is on another subject. All of a sudden he's talking about a seed that dies, is buried, and then becomes wheat. But as we follow what Jesus is saying here, the wheat analogy of verse 24 that he uses to show us a, a precept that death is the way to life. In Jesus' case, his death led to glory and life, not only for himself, but for others as well. And in the case of a disciple of Jesus, the precept is similar. A disciple must hate his life in this world. Now, what does that mean? Because we read that and we think, that's a pretty strong word, hate. Am I supposed to, to hate my life? Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, he would say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother and wife and children, brother, sister, yes, even his own life, also he cannot be my disciple. So do we go around saying, I hate this life. I hate you. I hate my kids. I hate my wife. I hate my parents. No, we don't do that. That would be a terrible witness, wouldn't it? Yeah, I want to be a Christian so I can walk around and hate everybody. And of course, Jesus doesn't teach that we're to hate our spouse or our kids or parents to be his disciple. Of course not. That would be very, very contradictory to what other scripture says, that we are to love our spouse. Husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. How we are to love our children. We're to honor our parents. There's so much written in the New Testament about how we're to love our brothers and sisters. Jesus, we're going to read in, in a few chapters in that upper room discourse. He's going to tell his disciples, they will know that you're my disciples by what? For your love for one another. So here is Jesus in John chapter 12 talks about hate his life. It means this, to be so committed to Christ that you have no self-centeredness. That this life is not a priority over being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 14 means that your love for Christ has preeminence over everyone else and everything else. And if this world becomes a priority of your heart and life, you will lose it. 
you will lose it. Some of the kids went to, a few years back, youth kids went to a youth event, and they, they had T-shirts there that on the front it says, Loser. And then it has this verse that we just read here in, in, in chapter 12 of John. Jesus came to give us truth. He said, you will know the truth in this gospel, he said that, and the truth will set you free. And he lets everyone in on that truth, whether you're Jew or Greek, that if you want to truly experience that abundant life that he has for us, and isn't it amazing how many books that are out there and how many seminars are presented to us and how many are, in, are into the, the self-help kind of mentality and motivation kind of mindset. That's the popularity of today. Uh, how to be successful. How to, you know, experience the secret of life and how to be happy all the time. And every day is a Friday and all these other things. But Jesus comes along and says that you get a life by dying to self. You don't live for self. You're not focused on self. You're not centered around self. But you center your life on Jesus Christ and you live for Him. So the Lord says, you want to experience life and life abundantly? As strange as it might sound to you guys, you Greeks, and of course their emphasis was intellect and philosophy and looking good and oratory skill and the perfect man, and they were so into that. As strange as it might sound initially, the key for you to experience life abundantly, that if you live for yourself and focus on yourself, you're going to lose out on life. And you're going to be discouraged and cheated, and you will go through life wondering and struggling, and what's the real purpose of life? How do you get a life? How do you and I get a life? You get it by dying, by dying to self. And you know what you'll find when you die to self and you're committed to Jesus Christ? that you'll end up loving your spouse and your children and your family and others more than you ever do in your own strength because you have the love of Jesus Christ that is in you. You'll be able to have that joy unspeakable, that joy deep down inside in your heart, just that peace and assurance that I have the Lord and I have eternal life and His promises are for me, even through the losses and the difficulties that we go through in life. And as you make Him the priority of your life and you die to self, you live for Him, that's when you're going to truly experience that life abundantly. Listen, the voices of the world say live for self. And even the church picks up on that with the, the self-centered Christianity of today. And it sounds so good. It really appeals to the flesh. But for you and I who are hearing the truth of God's word this morning, that we've said in our hearts that Jesus, you're my Lord, you're my master, you're my savior. You have called me to total devotion and commitment to you. And you've called me to a holy way of living. And even when it's not easy, I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to stand by you. And I'm going to be true to you, Lord. Even if I lose that promotion... Because I stood for you, Lord, and for godly integrity. I've stayed in that marriage because I know that that's what the Lord would want me to do, and it hasn't been easy. 
I know that it would be easy to stay at home on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, but you've called me to serve you, and, and I'm going to do that faithfully and get up. For you who desire to walk with him and make him truly the Lord and the priority of your life, and as you serve him and as you please him with your life, good news. The one that serves me, Jesus says, my father will honor. He will honor you. There's eternal rewards that are to be given to you that will last for all eternity. So Jesus continues, verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus knew what all entailed and taken on the cup of suffering and death. So he says, my soul is troubled. But he would not ask the Father to escape the hour. For this very purpose, I came to this hour. He knew that the purpose that he came to this world was to go to the cross, to glorify the Father. And as verse 28 again, we read, then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is the third time that you read in the gospel narratives that the voice of the Father is heard. First time was at Jesus' baptism where the voice of the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was at the beginning of his ministry. The second time that the Father spoke was at the Mount of Transfiguration where he was heard by Peter, James, and John. As the Father says, this is my beloved Son, hear him. Now at the end of his ministry, and I want us to consider this, but have you noticed that in all three occasions that the Father spoke, it was related to Jesus' death. Jesus' baptism, we've talked about this, that he was identifying with sinful humanity. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he was talking to Elijah and Moses. Luke chapter 9 tells us that they were talking about his death in Jerusalem. Now here in John chapter 12 is he's talking about going to the cross. And the reason that I think is very important for us to consider that is because I want to remind us once again, do you want to hear the voice of the Father? Then you die. You die to self. You look to the cross of Calvary, to the one who, who died for you and for me. And the one who dies to self and lives for Christ is the one that's going to hear the voice of the Father and the heart of the Father. Oh, maybe not audibly, but his words are going to resonate in your heart and in your mind as you just keep Jesus Christ and him crucified a priority in your life. So we look at the, the, the response of the people in verse 29. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Some were saying that it was a, a clap of thunder. Some were saying, no, it's an angel. They were both, of course, wrong. And now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So Jesus' death on the cross was a judgment on the world and a defeat for Satan. Paul, when he was writing to the church at Colossae, in chapter 2, describes Jesus' judgment on the world and sin and his defeat of Satan. Paul writes, Jesus, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, that is, speaking of sin, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So the world was judged in that sin that has come into the world, was nailed to the cross of Calvary, and the power of Satan was defeated. And 
Stripped, as Colossians 2 says, that word disarmed means uh, stripped. It's a military term. Like the, the conquering army, the conquering general would strip the defeated general. You know, strip him naked and parade him through a city and humiliate him. Yes, Satan will try to come against you. He will throw the fiery darts at you. He's going to war against us. It's a spiritual war out there. But remember this, he has no direct authority over you. We have victory in Jesus Christ. And eventually he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. And then in verse 32, you might want to underline this verse. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And this he said, signifying by what death he would die. The reason that I think that this is such an important verse Jesus says, if I be lifted up, that is on the cross of Calvary, I will draw all men to myself. People will say to you, and they will say to me, Pastor Jeff, this is what we should do to reach the kids. Uh, this is how we, we reach the youth kids, the young people. You need to be relevant. You need to kind of act cool. How do you reach the older folks? You have to be real conservative. How do we reach this culture? I'll tell you something that John chapter 12 tells us that we can ask those questions and we can answer it in a very, very simple way. The cross. You take them to the cross and let them see Jesus lifted up on the cross, dying for them, all of their sins, because of his love for them. I will draw all men to myself. It's the message of the cross, a message that is for every generation and for every culture. I don't think it's, oh, I have to be hip if I really want to reach the kids. You know, I got to get buff and put on the skinny jeans. And the days of skinny jeans are over for me, <laughs> as you probably know that. Way over. You know, get the T-shirt on and be cool, you know, and your appearance. There's so much emphasis on that in the church growth magazines and seminars that are given and use certain buzzwords and connect with them and be relevant or you know the older people you got to be real conservative and you know all of these methods and rather than bringing them to Jesus how do you reach anyone you talk to them about Jesus Christ and what he did for them and dying for them his blood shed for them Forgiveness is now available. Satan no longer has a hold on them. And you see, when the cross is taught or seen, it draws all men, and it is true. In Revelation chapter 5, that heavenly scene, we see that they're singing a new song, that you have redeemed us by your blood. Speaking of who? Jesus, of course, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's a picture of the church there in that heavenly scene. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, you know how he said, I didn't come in the wisdom of man, but in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And I was determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He would write in Romans chapter 1, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes. People will say, Pastor, you need to stress the law. Or you need to make people feel good about themselves. Or you need to give them positive thinking. Or they need to learn how to name it and claim it. You need to be a really good storyteller. You need to be purpose-driven. You need to have lots and lots of humor. 
But John chapter 12 shows me I point them to the cross. I teach them the cross, to walk in the light of the cross, and we share it with others. However old they might be or young they seem to be, and whatever background that they have, I give them Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what touches my heart, what He did for me on Calvary's cross in saving me. It draws me to Him. Didn't it you? Yes, of course. If I be lifted up, I will, not maybe, or it could happen. All drain men to myself. So this kind of confused the people at this time. In verse 34, the people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So they had the prophecies about Messiah that would come and rule and reign and establish the kingdom of God, but they had overlooked the prophecies about the suffering Messiah. The religious leaders, they even had a hard time with that. They knew the prophecies. They thought, well, is it going to be two messiahs that are going to come? One's going to be a suffering messiah. One's going to be a conquering messiah. That's what their thinking was. Some of them were thinking maybe if Israel's worthy, then, then the conquering messiah will come. If Israel is not worthy, then the suffering messiah will come. Rather than what we know, that there's two comings of Christ. The first time he came, he came to die for you and for me. The next time that he comes, and he will come, is going to come to rule and reign. They're saying, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is he? We just received you the other day as the Messiah that's going to conquer and free us from the dreaded Romes, the Roman soldiers, the Roman occupation. And Jesus here is saying, I've come to die. And it did not fit their idea of Messiah if you're truly Messiah, you're not going to die. Remember Peter up at Caesarea Philippi? That in the, uh, the confession of Peter, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, you've been given the king, keys to the kingdom, and I'll build my church, you know, and all of this. And Peter's feeling pretty good. And then Jesus began to talk that I'm going to go to Jerusalem, <clears throat> be handed over to the chief priests and elders, and I'm going to die. And Peter said, not so. What do you mean? Why are you talking about death? You're at the height of your popularity. You just fed 5,000. The crowds are great. And you're talking about dying? No. And Jesus, of course, rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because if Jesus didn't go to the cross and die for you and for me, none of us would have any hope. A greater bondage than Rome could ever put on anyone. The bondage of sin is what I came to do to free you from that. But they didn't understand. In verse 35, then Jesus said to him, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have light, believe in a light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. You have the light, stay close to the light, walk in the light. Now it was a few months earlier that Jesus in Jerusalem declared to be the light of the world. In verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they cannot believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. And these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Of course, Isaiah chapter 6, that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, 
the miracles and the signs that Jesus did testified that truly he was the Messiah, that he was the light of the world. But the nation as a whole did not believe. So John quotes two verses from Isaiah, which speaks of the nation rejecting the Messiah. The first quote in verse 38 comes from Isaiah 53, which of course is the clearest chapter in the Old Testament that speaks of the suffering Messiah. And the passage begins by stating that Israel would not perceive God's revelation. Who has believed our report, Isaiah writes? Whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It implies that only a few would. And then again, quoting from Isaiah 6, at the time that Judah was rejecting the Lord. Isaiah commissioned the ministry. Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. That's pretty tough. You're called the ministry to give a message, but they're not going to receive you. They're going to reject you. And once again, they had hardened their hearts to to the degree that they couldn't believe. They had rejected the light of the world that had come to them. You know, people today will reject because they've hardened their hearts against God and the Lord so much. And the fact that you are sons of the light, that you are light to them. And of course, Jesus said in John chapter 3 that men love the darkness rather than the light. They will overlook the evidence of changed lives and, and the prophecies and, and the canon of Scripture and all these things that show very clearly that Jesus is true and that He is who He said He is, the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. People harden their heart and they just won't believe. In verse 42, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Some of the rulers did believe. Now, initially, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea was in this group. But we're going to see at the end of the gospel, they come out as they were called secret disciples, but no longer. They asked for the body of Jesus. And at this time, we also know that, that some of the Pharisees are beginning to believe because in the book of Acts, you see those Pharisees. But some here, they did, not, they did believe, but they were afraid to confess them because they loved the praise of men over the praise of God. They didn't want to lose their status. They didn't want to lose their position. They didn't want to be persecuted. They didn't want to be put out of the temple or the synagogue. It's really a sad commentary, and I think it's a sad commentary on people's lives today what will people at work say if I tell them that I'm a believer? What will my family say? What will my friends say? What will they say, you know, uh, at the club, whatever it might be? What will they say if I bec- am one that makes a stand for Jesus? And listen, if there's anyone here this morning and you have that tendency and that mindset, the praise of man is going to go away. But God's praise is eternal. And Jesus is the one who's going to rule and reign. And you're not going to be ashamed of him at that time. And Jesus said very clearly that if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. Those are the words of Jesus. So we see here that there are those who are struggling right now. They, they, they are leaning towards the praise of men over the praise of God, really totally committed to Him. And so we see that then Jesus cried out in verse 44 and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in Him who sent me. And he who sees me sees Him who sent me. This is Jesus' last public address. You see, the one who sent me, the Father, keep this in mind because in chapter 14, 
Philip is going to say, show us the Father. And Jesus is going to respond by saying, if you see me, you've seen the Father. The disciples didn't even understand what Jesus was saying here. In verse 46, I've come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. So this last appeal to the Jews that Jesus is emphasizing previous themes that he had already preached. He had already told them that if they believe in him, the light of the world, that they would not walk in darkness. And that's the good news for you and for me. That we don't have to walk in darkness. We see people all around us that walk in darkness every single day. And we have opportunity to give them light, to present the light of the world, Jesus Christ, to them. And we don't have to walk in that darkness. We walk in the light. And hopefully, prayerfully, as we consider them and become a witness to them, that they see that we're walking in the light and want that in their own lives. In verse 47, If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And he who rejects me and does not, or does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus' desire was to save us. For us to come and believe in him, believe in what he has spoken. Remember Jesus said to Nicodemus in chapter 3, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. And he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in the only begotten Son of God is condemned already. I speak the words of the Father. All of us will stand before the Lord to be judged. And Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am he, then you will die in your sins. Father, my prayer this morning as we close now is that truly that our hearts, as we see Jesus lifted up that died on the cross for us, who went to Calvary's cross for every single one of us because all of us are sinners. And we know that the Word of God declares very clearly that we are separated from God because of our sin. We're spiritually dead, as Ephesians 2 says. But Jesus came to give us life and forgiveness. The one who lived a perfect life went to the cross and died for our sins. The only hope that there is of forgiveness and eternal life is through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as he told the Greeks, just as we know from your word that those who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And if there is anybody here this morning, whether out in the coffee shop or whether you're here in this sanctuary, that you've never surrendered your life totally to Jesus Christ, it isn't about being religious. It isn't about belonging to a church or hearing a Bible study. As good as it is to hear a Bible study, it is to present Jesus to you, for you to recognize your need for the Savior of the world. And if you do not believe that He is Lord of lords and the King of kings, the Son of God who died for you, you will die in your sins. That's what the Scriptures declare very clearly, and Jesus doesn't want that for you. He's provided forgiveness. He demonstrated His love for you that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us.
today is the day of salvation. Will you come? If you're here today and you're not right with God or you don't know what would happen if your life was to end today or tomorrow or this week, cry out to Him and come to Him because we're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. You repent. You quit going in the direction you're going, the thinking that you're thinking, and you turn to Jesus and you surrender your life to Him and you believe in Him that He died for you and He rose again. Because if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. If that means anything to anyone this morning, will you pray this prayer? Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God that died for me, a sinner. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are Lord of all and my Savior who died for me on Calvary's cross. And that you're alive, knocking on the door of my heart, and I now open my heart for you to come and sit on the throne of my heart. Be my personal Lord and Savior. And thank you for dying for me, and thank you for saving me, that I don't have to walk in darkness, but now walk in the light. Thank you for loving me and hearing my prayer, and help me to live for you all the days of my life. And I just want to say, if there's anyone here today that Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. And raising your hand, the act of that is not bringing salvation, but as you raise your hand, you're making that, that declaration that I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. And if anyone prayed that prayer this morning, will you do that? Will you just put your hand up and put it back down? Anybody at all, God bless you. And anybody else? If you're out in a coffee shop, just put your hand up. We've got people there to minister to you. We want to pray with you and bless you. Anybody else at all, come into Jesus. We give opportunity at our services to, for you to come to Christ. And we won't prolong this. Anybody else at all? Okay. Anybody else? God bless you. I see you. God bless you. God bless you. I see you in the corner. Don't be ashamed of him. This is great. The greatest day of your life is you come to Christ. Anybody else at all? Oh, Lord, we thank you for those who have raised their hands. That says, Jesus, I need you in my life. You are the Savior of the world. And you are the Lord of all lords. Father, I thank you for touching the hearts. And just as Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And I thank you for drawing by the Holy Spirit those this morning to you. And I pray that you fill them right now with your love and with your Holy Spirit, that you would bless them. They would leave this place rejoicing and, and having a new beginning in Christ to grow in your word and in your love. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time we've had in your word. I pray you bless everyone here as we go our way this morning. And we got a cold week coming, Lord. I pray you keep us warm. Be with the guys that are out working outside and those who, Lord, that have to be out in it, all of us in one degree or another. But, Lord, keep us safe. Help us to be a light to others. And during this holiday season that we enter into, that truly we would have a heart of thanksgiving and that we would just keep Jesus the center of everything of our lives. So, Lord, thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen. God is good, isn't he? God is good. Would you please stand?
I know we're running a little bit late, but you know, there was one announcement. I was up here giving announcements. I